We continue our series of comments on the Gospels. We are now well on the way toward completion of the Sermon on the Mount, which we will begin our reading today in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is a tremendously important passage, although not different in kind from many others in this particular sermon. Uh, in fact, it, it relates very closely to the section at the end of chapter 6 that we read just a few weeks back about not being anxious for the morrow, not taking thought for the morrow as the King James Version has it, living in the living present, in other words, which is only possible uh, through a relationship of trust with the universe. And that is what is being urged here on the seekers. Uh, it has several applications. Uh, one is, of course, to people who are seeking. And this application is the one that jumps into my mind, first of all, in connection with these verses, because these verses gave me personally tremendous hope when I was uh, first became aware that there was such a thing as truth and that it it was even possible maybe to find it. Once that became aware to me, I went back to the Bible, which I had formerly believed in very thoroughly, and I found this verse, which had meant very little to me in, in its previous incarnation in my life. And uh, I read it, and it gave me enormous hope. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And it seemed to me that it was a definite promise that Jesus was speaking directly to me and telling me, yes, there is something uh, there, there is something that is to be given, there is something to find, there is a door which will be opened. You have to ask for it, you have to look for it, you have to knock at that door, but if you do that, definitely it's there. And everyone that asks does get. Everyone that seeks does find. And everyone that knocks, the door is opened. So I took it to heart. And I assumed that he knew what he was talking about. And he did. And it really is true. And I I was very greatly amazed, I would say, at the marvelousness of the universe. So this is... This is definitely one application. On the other hand, Jesus is speaking, as we have seen, to initiates primarily. In fact, as far as we can tell, totally 
that this whole so-called sermon is an instruction for people who have already committed themselves. So while there is no reason, as we all know, masters often will reiterate points that really apply to seekers when they are speaking only to initiates, and they may do that for many reasons. I wouldn't necessarily pretend to know why they would do it on every occasion. Um, still, it is probable that the application of these words that Jesus meant at the time he was speaking them on this particular occasion was that this is still true for the disciple, for the initiate, for the person who has committed himself. The universe remains benevolent and it only asks of us that we stop fooling around. When we stop fooling around and take it at its own level, at its own face value on based on this kind of promise, then it will deliver. And this is a tremendous act of faith that's required, and this is the faith that is required. It's not blind faith, because um, it's demonstrated every step of the way, but it is faith. It means that we have to pay attention to the demonstrations that we get, observe them, give them their true significance, and act on them. We cannot receive them and then forget about them. And we have to keep moving in this direction. Our relationship with the Master, in other words, is one, again, of complete and absolute trust, which is the real meaning, I think, of faith. We often assume that faith means intellectual belief, but that's only a very shallow kind of faith, I would say. But the kind of faith that the Masters talk about is trust. Our hands are in His. Okay, and He is leading us. The image that the Master uses so often of the blind man who cannot see where to go. So the man who has sight comes and gives him his finger. And the blind man puts, takes a hold of his finger and the man who has sight leads him out. That is what we are, what we are to do. And if we do that, then what will not be given us? Again, there are several applications possible. See, one is on a very mundane level. Um, we can ask for things like uh, food and so forth. It's it's okay to do that. I mean, the the Lord's Prayer has a has a uh, clause to that effect. And we have seen that as long as we ask only for enough, as um, we can use easily, that we are not violating any any commandment or anything. And in the appendix to his book on prayer, Master Kripal Singh has explained um, how masters do have often composed prayers with clauses in them like the Lord's Prayer. Some of them are very funny, by the way. Um, if any of you have not read that section in a long time, it's a lot of fun to reread the prayer of Dana Bhagat, for example, how he, the things that he wants and just enough, the bare minimum, so that he can practice his meditation and so forth. Um, it's okay to do that, all right, and I think we will find, I think the example, the experience of everyone that is on the path is that if we are living in this relationship to the Master that's described here, if we are trusting him, 
if we have a hold of his finger, if our hands are in his, then we will find that an amazing amount of our prayers are in fact answered, including many perhaps that we find once they're answered that we wished we hadn't asked for, but nonetheless they get answered anyway. This is a the experience of most, it certainly has been my experience, and in, insofar as I know, I would say that it is the experience of a great many initiates, judging by what people have told me, what I've observed and so forth, and things that the masters have told me also. Of course, there are there are all kinds of of ways to ask. In the book I mentioned several weeks back, the book The Ocean of Grace Divine that was published shortly after Master Kripal Singh left the body consists almost entirely of accounts, I would say 70 to 80 percent of accounts of people making requests to the Master and having them granted, sometimes by praying, sometimes by specifically asking him sometimes uh, perhaps by just having the desire there without even giving expression to it, even mentally. And uh, those prayers were answered. Prayers for children, prayers for uh, miracles, prayers for cures of illness. And we have seen also that Jesus spent a great deal of his time uh, answering prayers on this level. And this is a real... Thing. Now, this is uh, part of it, definitely. does not necessarily mean that the disciple ought to be involved in this, even though the master may do it. <coughs> it does not mean that the disciple ought to be asking on this level, although if he does, he will almost certainly have it. The, um, the bhajan that we often sing reads... Uh, that the Father does give whatever we ask of him. And in his book on prayer, the Master explains how that works, actually. He says, when the reservoir of all power is in each one of us, we can, by a dip therein, become spiritually great and powerful. As physical exercises make us robust and strong physically, <clears throat> so do spiritual exercises awaken in us latent spiritual powers. By means of these, we can pull up the sluice gates and thus flood our very being with divine currents. When a person becomes divinized or divinity personified, the very nature, which is the handmaid of God, begins to dance at his beck and call to fulfill all his needs and requirements. In other words, it becomes, it is more or less of a natural process, and it does not require um, a lot of effort on our part if we are subsisting in the relationship to the universe that is implied here. Oftentimes, I mentioned that sometimes we find that when we get what we want, we don't necessarily, um, are not happy with it. Um, I have had occasion to experience this myself, and I also know a number of other people who have talked to me who have experienced like this too, that there is something that they want really badly, so much so that they cannot see anything else but that thing. And they can't believe that they will really get it. They pray for it. All their attention is directed to it. And they get it. And they're blissfully happy for a while. 
And then there are all sorts of ramifications of it that they were not aware of before. And now, can they pray to have that taken away? You see, it becomes very sticky um, when this kind of thing happens. And it's why I think that the highest thing is to really, is to not get involved in asking for things on this level. Master explains in another place that our destiny is charted out beforehand, that we will get what we will get. <coughs> the Master certainly has the power to fulfill our prayers regardless of, in some areas of our destiny karma, he can add to it and manipulate it to suit himself, but it's not necessarily our gain if he does so. And we should be careful. It's hard for the Master to refuse a loving request of the disciple, even if it means his or his successor's inconvenience even. We have seen how in the time of Guru Amardas, when Bibi Bani, his daughter, um, saw that the couch on which he was sitting in Samadhi, that the leg was broken and it was about to tip over, dumping him on the floor. She did not want to pull him out of his Samadhi, so she sat all night holding the couch up with her hand. A tremendous cost to her physical self. A tremendous kind of selfless service. And when the Master came out of his Samadhi, he offered, he was very pleased and told her she could have any boon she wanted. And the boon that she had asked for was that the guruship should remain in her family. She was, of course, his daughter. And he was very displeased, but he granted her the boon. He did not say, no, that's unworthy. You should not want that. Ask for something else. He granted it, but he said there would be a lot of botheration resulting from it because the free-flowing course of the guruship has been dammed up. And that is taken to refer to the difficulties that the later Sikh gurus, all of whom were descendants of Bibi Bani, um, had in the course of their careers. So there's a lot of ramifications. In another place in the book Prayer Master quotes Shakespeare uh, in the play Antony and Cleopatra who ask uh, where one of the characters is explaining to another that oftentimes we ask the gods for things, but we ask amiss, so they are not granted because we are asking for our harms. That is also true, less true than would seem apparent, I think. The masters do give um, us a great deal. There are some things, things that are absolutely and only destructive, they will hold back on because they love us. Things that are frivolous or harmless but not specially good, they will often give us anyway if we really want it. And they will allow us the option of deciding whether to waste time with it or not. So they are really extremely um, liberal with us, I would say, and allow us in every case to make the decision as to whether to grow or not as a result of whatever they give us. But the, the course, that's only one that's the least important aspect of it. The true teaching of the Masters and the teaching that is the highest um, application of these particular verses, Master has commented on in morning talks. Um, I was just telling the story of a king who had four wives. 
He was going to some foreign land and asked his wives what present they would like, what he should bring for them. Every wife had something of her own liking, but the youngest was the greatest lover of the king. She wrote to him, Well, I want you only and nothing else. You come back. So naturally, when the king returned, he sent the presents to his other wives, and he went to the youngest wife. This is only to show that what you really want, that you will be given. There is a saying of the masters that God has promised to give everything what a man wants, what his soul really desires. We simply say superficially, Oh God, we want you, but at the bottom we want worldly things. If you have got real love for God in your heart, God will come to you. He will manifest to you. But generally we want only worldly things, here and hereafter. Those who care for the love of God don't hanker after the worldly things, nor the wealth of the other worlds. They don't even want emancipation. They would like to have only one thing. No heaven, no earthly things, not emancipation, only to be with God, that's all. If we have really got that hankering in our heart, then naturally we must meet God. God will come to us. If we take one step that way, and that is the asking and the knocking, etc., he will proceed 100 steps to receive us. At other places, Master has said millions of steps to receive us. We have to decide what we want at the heart of our hearts. Are we here only for the worldly things? Are we here only for the name and fame of the world? Are we here only to have things of the other world or heaven? Are we really after emancipation from birth and death? A real lover wants none of these things. He wants God and God alone. This is the highest ideal that we can achieve in the man-body and in no other. So you have to decide by an honest searching of your heart what you want. If you want God, then God will meet you, sure and certain. If you want something else, you will have it, that's all. You will get nothing short with whatever you want. But why, when you go to a king, do you want ordinary pebbles and stones? So we should judge how we stand day by day. And the verse says, What man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? We need not worry about the non-vegetarian implications in that verse. As we have seen earlier, um, the original version of this particular gospel, in fact, um, was almost certainly uh, a vegetarian gospel, the gospel according to the Hebrews, as it was called, um, the gospel of the Ebionites. And uh, according to the records of contemporaries, all of the references to eating fish meat, etc., which are not very many, as it is, in this particular gospel, were corruptions that came in later when people started using them who were not primarily vegetarian. Uh, but the point is clear, you know, that even if we even know better, and this leads into the next verse, verse 12, about the golden rule, if we even know better, if someone we love, our son, okay, our child, asks us for something to eat. Are we going to give them something useless? It's like the old thing about the, the lump of coal in the Christmas stocking on Christmas morning, which I used to be terrified I would get when I was a kid. 
But who is going, who, obviously, if anyone loves us, who is going to do that to us? See, which of us would do that to someone we love? So why should um, our Father who loves us more than anyone, and as we have seen, one of the things, one of the themes throughout this sermon has been the infinite care with which God uh, loves us, so much so that um, each hair of our head is numbered. And uh, therefore, why should we worry? Again, it ties back into that that other section that we studied before. Why should we worry? So if we know better than that, can't we? wouldn't we think that God would know better? Otherwise, then the whole universe, instead of being benevolent, becomes either absurd, positively farcical, or absolutely malevolent, totally evil. In which case, you see, if the universe is like that, and this is the the interesting crux of the matter in regard to to making determinations of our behavior. If the universe is either absurd or indifferent on the one hand or against us on the other hand, then there is nothing that we can do. But if, on the other hand, the universe is benevolent and there is something to be found, there's something to seek for and something to knock at which will open up, then it's up to us to, to do it. So that regardless when I was first seeking, this was the way in which it came to me, almost blindingly, like a revelation, that as far as I was concerned, it was clear that I had to act as though there was something there. That the, to put it in these terms, that, that uh, if, if these verses are operable, if they can be actually lived, taken as a, as a constitution of life, so to speak, and lived up to, worked on, put into practice as much as possible, then uh, that amounted to something. But if the universe was otherwise, then it made no difference what I did anyway. I might as well do this as anything else. So what, what, op- what options really were there? What was there to lose? And that is a fact. Somehow or other, the implication here is this, and this is something that the medieval philosophers spent a great deal of intellectual energy on, But there is something in us, our goodwill, okay, that in us which recognizes good, which instinctively understands something, fairness, justice, that responds to love, that likes to be forgiven, that part of us that, that, um, that is aware of all this didn't come out of a vacuum. It is made, it's a, it's the reflection of our soul. It is the image of God. And if we know whatever we understand and know better than, at least God is going to do better than that. At least as good as that, at the very least. So that, um, that is why, that's the, you say, the rational basis on which we could trust. Just on the grounds of our own personal experience. That, um, that we wouldn't treat someone else any worse than that. If he then being evil, being everything that we are, evil, weak, however we want to put it, prone to sin, prone to making mistakes, um, whether we want to whitewash it or, or make it really strong, in our fallen nature, in our separated aspect, if we know this much, how to give good gifts unto our children, 
then how much more shall our Father which is in heaven give good things to us if we ask him? So the the parable is very clear. And then Jesus continues and this leads directly into this, the so-called golden rule. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you like, whatever, however you want people to relate to you, to t- treat you and deal with you, that's our criterion. And that sums up the whole revelation of which this Sermon on the Mount is a commentary on, that is to say, the Old Testament. The law and the prophets being the one way of referring to the Old Testament, which of course was not, at the time this was given, called the Old Testament by anybody because it was only what Bible there was. Now this is a really an amazing teaching and it's been it's been found fault with um, both uh, on negative grounds and positive grounds and Master Kripal Singh in one place indicates that it's not enough uh, certainly it's not enough if we do it with the idea that we will get what we want back that is that we will treat other people the way that they treat us that we treat other people the way we want them to treat us with the idea that they will then treat us that way that becomes a perversion of it and that is it's in that sense that he refers to it as business living in the book The Wheel of Life on the whole it is a marvelous summation of the ethical teachings that the masters give because it puts the the instead of having an abstraction before us we have reality before us in other words if people would remember this if we would remember it then there's no problem it's the master tells that story if of um, krishna and arjuna arjuna lost his temper because someone insulted his bow this was of course in the epic heroic days and he took it he had taken a vow that if anyone insulted his bow gandava that he would uh kill them and when he lost his temper and began to live up to the vow Krishna stopped him and said what uh, why are you doing this and he said well I've taken a vow to do it and I have to live up to my vow if I don't if I break it I will be breaking my dharma it will not be lawful for me because I have sworn to do it and Krishna said what uh, what is the result of dharma and Arjuna replied that Dharma is there to make things happy and peaceful and better all around. And Krishna said, well, just think, what is the result of this particular thing? Is this going to be make anyone happier and more peaceful? Or the reverse? And Arjuna saw his point and, and desisted. Now, it's that kind of thing that this verse does, this golden rule. If we realize that this is the criterion, if we just stop and think, anything that we are in question about, we know what the commandments are. Everyone knows what the commandments are. In the heat and, and bustle of daily life, it's really easy to forget. But if we if we stop and think, um, if if someone else were doing this to me, would I like it? And be honest with ourselves. A lot of times we we subscribe to ourselves motives and and standards that we don't really in fact have. If, for example, we're going to teach somebody a lesson. 
and we say, and we stop and ask ourselves this and say, would I like this? And we say, yes, I would like to be taught the truth. I would like to be shown a lesson. It would be good for me. That's baloney. I mean, we don't, we don't really want that. And the time comes because we, it hurts too much. And we should think about, about that instead. But if we do that, it would, it would, it would really, um, make things a lot simpler for everyone, I think. And the, on a national scale, of course, uh, countries relating to each other, if, if something of this could just, I've often said that the things that Jesus is saying here don't apply on a large political levels that they are meant for individual initiates in their daily lives, and that's true. But this is the kind of thing that is expandable like that. If a country thought before they started bombing another country or went into, invaded another country in a, in a lot of patriotic zeal, would we like it if they were doing it to us? Um, then maybe they would think twice. Maybe they wouldn't do it. It's, it's, um, it's hard, you know, to put this into practice. The easiest thing that happens, usually what the mind wants to do with all of these things is to, is turn them around. I have observed this in my own self very much. And I've also come across it too in other ways. That, uh, as soon as we become aware of the importance of something like this, okay, that we instantly start applying it to what other people do to us. In other words, um, we become aware of the importance that people should do to us, that we should do to others what we want them to do to us, so we start thinking, now, this person is doing something to me I don't like. Are they thinking like this? Are they following this? They're not, um, they're not taking this into, into serious consideration first. And, and just turning it and therefore judging them, uh, for not following this particular thing and this is one of the ultimate forms of what Master has described somewhere as the person um, being waked up and saying yes yes I'm awake and then going back to sleep already when we do that sort of thing it is however hard there is no doubt that it's hard um, this is what a contemporary Christian scholar says the law of Jesus frankly demands a standard of conduct that transcends what, they, what may be normally expected of man because it is addressed to man as possessing the more than normal fullness of life, which is the gift of the Spirit of God. And that is exactly the point, I think. I'll read it again because it applies very much to initiates. The law of Jesus frankly demands a standard of conduct that transcends what may be normally expected of man because it is addressed to man as possessing the more than normal fullness of life which is the gift of the Spirit of God. We have to whom much is given, much is expected. And as Master Kapal Singh said, there are good people everywhere but you are been selected to be good people. So we have been given more we have got within ourselves the capacity for greatness. We may be not doing that. We may be not living on that level. But the purposes of these instructions is to bring that out of us, to make it possible that we will, so that not only will our own lives be deepened and strengthened and fulfilled, but the world around us too. 
in the in the section that I read from prayer earlier, Master Kripal referred to the spiritual exercises. And that doesn't only, I think, refer to meditation, although that's certainly its primary meaning, but it also refers to putting into practice whatever the masters say. And these these commandments, okay, if you love me, keep my commandments, um, is not easy to put them into practice. It's much easier to fall into the the old pattern of sleep, of uh, self-justification, of self-indulgence, which is our birthright. I mean, it's one of our birthrights. It's our birthright from our fallenness as opposed to our birthright from our real essence. And uh, it's much easier to do that so that uh, when we try to put these into practice, it's really hard. It's like exactly like, in fact, doing exercises if you're out of shape. Um, I don't know if many of you have this experience, but I have, of getting into very bad physical shape from not enough exercise, then going through an exercise system to get back into shape, after a certain amount of time, I really don't want to do it anymore because it's darn hard. And uh, it doesn't have much, you know, it doesn't seem as though it offers much. You, you work very hard to do it. At the end, you're tired and you can't see any difference. And yet I know intellectually, okay, if I do it, then the end result will be that um, things that would otherwise be hard that I may have to do in the course of living will be much easier because I will have developed that strength ahead of time. And it's something like that. Yeah, the combination of meditation and of putting into practice the things that the masters say every time they come up will make us strong enough so that when we really are faced with an enormous challenge, um, we won't crumple up like a piece of cardboard. We will be able to to uh, live up to that which we have been given. And who knows, you know, what's going to be demanded of any of us or all of us in the next, in the near future. Who knows? We don't know. All right, I'll continue with this next week.